open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew, pew chair in front of you, under the chair in front of you, I suppose. There should be one in there somewhere. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. It's a passage that the famous reformer Martin Luther described this way. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Awesome. (laughs) Luther, a Greek scholar, and he basically threw his hands up and said, I don't know. I read several commentators who described it as one of, if not the most difficult passage to interpret in all of Scripture. In one verse, verse 19, there are nine words, and scholars disagree on the interpretation of every single one of them. Awesome. I struggle when I come to a passage like this because there are those of you that are going to have these really deep theological profound interpretation questions that are good and I could spend the next hour and a half trying to answer them. I won't, but I could and I still wouldn't probably answer them to your satisfaction. But at the same time, as much as I want to bring clarity to some of these very difficult issues, there is a gospel truth in this passage that is so important and so clear and so profound and quite frankly is Peter's main point that I don't want to miss that. So so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on the main thing. We'll run quickly through the controversies. And those of you that are all into biblical interpretive controversies, you're going to leave very frustrated and I'm sorry for that. Okay? It's just the way it's going to go. I'll do my best. Peter, in this passage, seems to be using ideas that are familiar to his readers and are foreign to us today. You come across this often in the Bible, like today, we have certain idioms, certain uh, illustrations that we might use. If we went to Peter's day and and used a reference to the Super Bowl, they'd be thinking, what do you want a big meal for? I mean, they would have no concept of what we meant. We could say that offhanded. We immediately know what we're talking about with the Super Bowl. They would have no concept. And it's, it works the other way, too. There are things that Peter is going to talk about that they understood that we just don't know. The other struggle is that the Greek, the original language of this text, is very unclear. And it's not just there, that there are minor differences in translations. There are major differences that are all legitimate translations of those words that have vastly different meanings. So how do we deal with a difficult passage? It's important when you're dealing with a difficult passage such as this to start with the big picture. We too often want to drill down into the details and argue about them. Start with the big picture. What is Peter talking about and what does he say about that? Everything else has to relate to that in some way. We may not get it, but we need to start with that big picture. Then we can dig deeper into the details until we reach a point where we cannot go any further with certainty. And that's the point at which, with humility, we need to stop and say there are other details there he's pointing to, but I may not be able to say that with absolute certainty. So I'm going to stop. 
The other important thing when dealing with difficult passages is use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Never let a difficult to translate or profoundly unclear passage overrule other clear passages. And there is never an instance in Scripture where a major Christian doctrine needs to be based on an unclear passage. Remember those things, because as we dig into the passage, you're going to see that unfortunately Christians throughout history have done just that. They have based some very erroneous views on this passage. Keep the main thing the main thing. So what is Peter's main point? If you've been following along in the the sermon series here on 1 Peter, you know that Peter is writing to a group of Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, a culture that does not support what they believe, does not believe what they believe, and in fact is beginning to turn against them, beginning to accuse them of certain things because of their belief. Christians went from being kind of ignored, sort of kind of accepted, but really just basically the Roman people were just sort of apathetic toward it. Now the Romans are beginning to turn against them. In mild ways. Massive persecution has not broken out yet when Peter writes this. But the people are beginning to suffer for their faith. And Peter's main point in this book is to tell them, keep going. God's not done yet. Keep going. So let's look at the context of this passage because it's going to help us to understand what the passage is about. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. This was the last verse of last week that we looked at. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So that, that's where he's going to lead into this passage, suffering for doing good rather than suffering for doing evil. Say, look, you're going to suffer. <laughs> right? There's your positive encouragement for the day. Suffering's going to come. What are you going to do in that suffering? And he's making the point, and we talked about this last week, Well, make sure you're suffering for righteousness, for trusting in Jesus, not for disobedience. Suffer for the right reasons. If you have to suffer, at least make it for the right reasons. Now let's go after the passage that we're looking at today. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So the bookends to our passage this morning are all about suffering and hope in the journey of suffering. What is our attitude? What is our perspective when we find ourselves in that moment of suffering, especially suffering for your faith? This is the main point of the entire letter, and it is specifically the theme of the section that contains our passage today. So we have the main point of the passage, enduring and suffering. We have specifically in our passage today, dealing with the hope that we can hold on to when everything else seems to be falling apart. In the passage, Peter's going to give us three pictures of how God works to give us this hope. Three pictures. The first picture he's going to give us is our salvation through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Peter says something very quick. And almost very simple. 
that can get lost in the midst of all the details of this passage. But it is so powerful. And it's that quick and simple statement we're going to spend the majority of our time in this morning. Because that is Peter's main point. The next two pictures that he'll use are what have caused all of the debate throughout the history of Christianity. The language is vague and open to various interpretations. As I said earlier, it looks like he's using ideas that were familiar to them that aren't familiar to us today. He uses a picture of Noah in the ark, and then he uses a picture of baptism. And both these things are used to say, keep going in your suffering. Now let's take a closer look. Let me read for you verses 18 and then the end of 21 into 22, because these are the bookends of the passage, and he talks about what is the way of Jesus. That's how he's going to frame this whole discussion on suffering in this passage. What is the way of Jesus? Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now skip down to uh, the end of verse 21. It uh, saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This This is how Peter wraps up this whole passage. So whatever he's saying in the middle has to do with this. You with me so far? Okay, some of you are already starting to tune out. You tune out later, okay? Stick with me for this part. This is the really important part. The suffering of Christ for sins and his conquering of sin through death and resurrection. And then he goes on in verse 21 and 22, his final destination, Christ's ultimate victory of reigning at the right hand of God the Father. This picture is what Peter is pointing to in this passage to say, you can have hope because look at Jesus Christ. Look at how he suffered. Look at how he has victory. Look at where he is now. He is reigning on high. Don't fall apart in the middle of the suffering. Keep the big picture in mind. I think part of our struggle with this is that I'm not sure we understand just how bad the cross was in terms of the world. You see, the the Roman culture looked at the cross as the ultimate defeat the ultimate embarrassment, the ultimate sign that culture is right and you are wrong. If you're hanging on a cross, you have lost, your way was wrong, everything was wrong about you. It is the ultimate defeat in the world's eyes. Only the worst of the criminals and rebels were put on a cross. It was a horrible way to die, horrible suffering, coupled with profound shame on you and everybody that knows you. And yet, Peter points to this and says, this truth that Jesus Christ went through the cross and used the ultimate suffering of the world to provide us salvation is our hope. Christ has saved us through his death and resurrection and reigns over everything as a picture of, of suffering that ultimately leads to victory. That's what Peter is setting up. Suffering that ultimately leads to 
victory. This is Peter's focus in this passage. This is the hope that we have. If you miss everything else from this point on, remember that. Suffering, no matter how much the world looks at us and says you're wrong, no matter how much the world looks at Jesus Christ and the gospel and says that's foolish, that's wrong, the very picture of Jesus Christ says that that suffering, that struggle is not the end. Victory came through the cross and the resurrection and Christ reigning on high. So let's look at what is said about Jesus Christ. Look at the first part of verse 18 there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I want to take this backwards, okay? Because he's, he starts, no, actually he ends with why Jesus did this. And he uses the phrase to bring you to God. Peter, throughout this letter, is talking about a journey. And he's relating our journey of faith today back into the Old Testament, back into what the people went through, a journey from being enslaved in Egypt to being brought into the promised land and all the struggles they faced along the way and all the times they wanted to give up and go back to Egypt. And God kept saying, go, go, keep going, keep trusting. Talked about this this morning in my Sunday school class. And Peter takes that and says, you are the people of God today. Don't get stuck in the wilderness. Don't give up on God. He is still powerful. He is still at work. And he emphasizes here, though, the journey's hard. Can you resonate with that? Following Christ is hard work. There is difficulty and suffering along the way. And often we look at those moments of struggling in our faith or moments when family, friends, relatives, culture are turning against our faith. And we say, I don't know. Let's just go back to my old way of living. And Peter says, no, the suffering has a final destination. It is part of the journey, but it is not the final destination. Jesus went through the cross and the resurrection to bring us to God. That's how he's describing what we would say as salvation. We would say Jesus died to save you, and that's true. But Peter describes it as a journey to take you from where you are to where he wants you to be in this perfect relationship with God. So how does he do this? He says, Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He specifically says that Christ suffered... That's what the people are going through. And he says it wasn't fair. How many times do we get in situations and we say, God, this isn't fair. How can you allow this to happen to me when it's, it's not fair? Where's the justice? And Peter says, look at Jesus. He suffered for what was not fair. It was very clearly, Peter points out, an unjust suffering. He didn't deserve what happened to him. In fact, he goes on further by saying the righteous for the unrighteous. See, we're the unrighteous. You know who deserved what happened to Jesus? Us. Me. Sinner. Dave. I deserved what happened to Jesus. I'm the unrighteous that he suffered for. And so were you. He suffered for us. Why? It says for sins. Those two words, it's easy to overlook it, but that was how the Old Testament sacrifice was described. It was a sacrifice for sins. The penalty of sin was put on the Old Testament sacrifice and the sacrifice was put to death. And Peter is saying, we have a better sacrifice now. 
the Son of God took our sin upon himself and died in our place. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 sums this up so well. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, referring to the Old Testament priests. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool or to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. God used the unjust suffering of Jesus to bring us to himself. Suffering, what Peter is trying to help us to see, is not a sign of defeat or failure in God's plan. In fact, the path of suffering is often God's path to victory. That's the encouragement. Too often we say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Have you just given up on me? Have you just let me go? Have you abandoned me? And Peter says, look to Jesus. It wasn't true for Jesus. It was the exact opposite. The suffering of Jesus was not God giving up or abandoning us. It was God engaging us and saving us. Don't give up. That's the hope that we have in the midst of our suffering. Rest of verse 18, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The gospel looks like a contradiction in this world. The cross looks like a failure to this world. And yet we claim it as our ultimate victory. And we wonder why the world doesn't get it, right? I mean, I hope most of us can remember a time that we didn't get it either. I think sometimes we forget that when we look at the world and say, why don't they get it? Well, yeah, we struggled with it too. The gospel looks like a contradiction. And Peter sums up this contradiction, put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Here's where we begin to go into some of the difficulty in this passage. What is he talking about? I think put to death in the body is fairly obvious, right? Jesus died. He died on the cross. Now, I say it's obvious. People have debated that throughout history. Well, he didn't really die. He just sort of passed out and he came back later. No, the testimony of scripture is he died. The Romans were really, really good at killing people. They did a good job. He was dead. Okay? They knew how to do that. He died. So what does Peter mean by then made alive in the spirit? Was he kind of sort of brought back to life? Was there this time in between his death and his resurrection that he was alive in the spirit and something happened? What is he talking about? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, because Peter actually helps us to interpret this very verse. Let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is where Peter goes after this. He says, okay, because this is true, this is how you are to live. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join in with them or do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. 
There's that suffering. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. We'll deal next week with the whole preaching to people who are now dead. We'll talk about that next week. But look at the end of that passage. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body. Remember, Jesus Christ died in the body, but was made alive in the spirit. And here he says, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So he's talking about the same thing here. What is he talking about? He's saying in this world, there are two ways to live. One is our way. He calls that living in the flesh. That's actually probably a better translation of the Greek word there. And it doesn't mean just physical life. That's not the way the the Bible uses this. It means a life lived simply on its own, apart from God, in rebellion against him, thinking, I've got this, I don't need God. That's life in the flesh. It might lead to being a good moral person, just ignoring God. It might lead to being a horrible, awful sinner and ignoring God. But all of that is summed up in living in the flesh. And then he says, but there's another way. There's life in the spirit. This is living under God's rule in recognition that he is God and we are not. He has provided us salvation. Jesus Christ is the way to live in the spirit. And he is calling the people, and you see that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, live this way. Paul says this over and over again. You're not that person anymore. Live in the spirit. Live in this new kingdom. Live this way. There are two realms in this world. One is called the flesh, the body, sin, human standards, and it leads to death. The other is called the spirit, God's kingdom, salvation, righteousness, and it leads to life. What Peter is saying in chapter 4, verse 6, is the same thing that he's saying back here about Jesus Christ. He says, you might look like you've lost in one kingdom, but that's because you've become victorious in the other. Live in the kingdom of the Spirit. So go back to our passage here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus was put to death in the body, in the flesh. He came to the kingdom of this world. He took our sin, our penalty upon himself, and he lost. He died. And the world stood back and cheered. We won. We defeated him. And God says, no, 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 no. Because he won in the other kingdom. Alive in the Spirit. Now understand, he's not saying that the moment he died on the cross, he became alive in the Spirit. That would be horrible theology. Jesus was already alive in the Spirit. If you take it that way, it means he was dead in the Spirit and then became alive. And that doesn't make any sense when you come to Jesus. What he's saying is his true victory was not in the realm of sin. He died there, he overcame it, but then he was alive in the Spirit. And he says, look, you've got two kingdoms. Which one do you want to be victorious in? Jesus is alive in the Spirit. We see and experience suffering in this world, the kingdom of flesh. 
But in Christ, there is another truth. Life in the Spirit. The hope we have in Christ is that what you see, what you experience in your day-to-day life, the judgment of the world, the suffering, even the decaying of our own bodies is not the final destination. It's not the end of the story. We've got to look beyond. And the resurrection and then the ascension of Christ to rule at the right hand of God the Father is an example that we can look to to say, see, that's how God works. But it's far more than an example. Because not only is it an example of how God works, it is the thing that accomplishes it. It is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that is the profound hope that we have that this is not all there is. This is not the end. And though I may be guilty in sin, I can be alive in Jesus Christ. This is Peter's main point in this passage. Don't miss this. The Christian life is a journey. And our present situation might be filled with suffering and struggle and doubt. But we know that's not the final destination. Look at the end of 21 into 22. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as he introduces suffering, and then he goes through the middle of this passage, we're going to go back to that. I promise it'll be quick. Where he ends up is, here's the rest of the story. Made alive, resurrected, reigning on high at the right hand of God the Father. That is the final word for all of our suffering. And Christians, when you're going through those times of suffering and doubt, that's where our perspective needs to be. That's where our hope needs to rest. The world judged Jesus, and he suffered and was put to death. Yet he is alive forever and ever, and he is the actual judge of the world. And he reigns on high, sovereign over every spiritual and earthly power. It is the absolute and ultimate victory. Whatever else this passage means, we'll talk about it in a second. Don't lose sight of that. Don't let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the ultimate hope no matter what you are going through. Now, Peter is going to give two other examples of how God brings people through a difficult situation to an ultimate safety. He's used Jesus as one example and the one that accomplishes that. Now he's going to use two others. He's going to start with the example of the ark and understand the way Peter is doing this. And again, we may not understand what he's trying to say in all of it, but I can see what he's doing. He's taking certain words... And he says it in relation to the gospel, and then he links it into these other things. And then he takes some words there, and he links another things. The Jewish rabbis called this stringing pearls. It was one method they would use to teach. They would tie together things in Scripture based on certain key words. It was a common way of teaching. And I think that's largely what Peter is doing here. So, look at verses 19 through 20. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 
on the surface of it, it looks like at some point, Peter is saying, Jesus went to this place, this prison, maybe a spiritual place, where these people at Noah's day, all the way back in Acts chapter 6, and, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6 and 7, these people that were imprisoned during the flood or died during the flood, and somehow he's going and preaching or proclaiming something to them. Some people have taken this to say, see, here's purgatory. Here's Jesus going and giving the gospel to these people in the Old Testament. I don't think that this passage can be used to justify that conclusion at all. There's a lot here that is unclear. But there are a few things that are clear. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Peter is referencing this passage, clearly. And I think we need to see why. Genesis chapter 6. Let me start in verse 1 and read through verse 3. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be numbered, or their days will be 120 years. This passage is fraught with problems. Who are these sons of God, and who are the daughters of men, and what are their offspring that later on become called the Nephilim? What in the world is going on? I don't know. There's your answer. I don't know. I. I actually had to write a paper in college on this very passage, and it was, I think it was like 10 pages long, and my conclusion was very simply, I don't know. And, and that was really the only conclusion anybody could come to. Here, it could be this, could be this. But here's what we do know. Number one, there was a huge Jewish myth that came from this. I referenced this in my Sunday school this morning. This concept of the Nephilim, these grand either superhumans or, or demonic or angelic. There's a lot of confusion about that. They were something and they became sort of this fable, this myth to represent these really bad things that came from something really, really bad. And we looked in uh, uh, Exodus when the people come near to the promised land after they're delivered from Egypt, and they come really, really close, and they send in spies, and the spies come back, and you know what they say is in the land? The Nephilim. Ooh, and it sent a shudder down everybody's back. Because they're tying into this myth. This myth then comes into account in a book that is, is considered extra-biblical. It's not part of Scripture. It's the book of uh, Enoch. Is an extra-biblical, suedepigraphal, that's a mouthful, book. It means it wasn't written by the guy that it claims to be written by. It's a lie, basically. And we do not accept that. It's not how God works. He doesn't work through authors that claim to be one thing, and they're not. But in the book of Enoch, it talks about a prophet, Enoch, going and preaching to Nephilim in prison. It ties into this Jewish myth. Somehow, someway, I believe that Peter is tying into this myth as well. Not to say it's true, but to use it as an example of what he's saying. Interestingly enough, I found out that the Romans actually had Roman coins with a picture of Noah and the ark on one side. Not in any way related to scripture, but because the story of an ark and a flood and even Noah is so pervasive throughout almost every culture in this world, which really shouldn't be too surprising. 
If the whole world is covered in a flood and one guy survives, you would think stories would be told about it. Turns out they are. So even in the Roman culture, they knew something. But look in Rome, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, because this is what I think Peter's doing right here. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. The word there for mortal is flesh. The Greek translation of this passage has the exact same two words, spirit and flesh, that Peter applies to Jesus, who suffered in the body, the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what he's doing is he's saying, let's look at another place where things got really, really bad, and yet God provided deliverance. Here in Genesis chapter 6, we have a tension between the two kingdoms, flesh and spirit. It's the same theme. So what was the outcome of the situation? God brings judgment, the flood, suffering even, and yet Noah and his family are saved through the ark. God provides a way for them to be saved. Hold on to that word. We're going to come back to it in a moment. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. What does it mean that after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built? My answer is, I don't know. But I'll tell you what I think it cannot be. This is not Jesus going into some imprisoned place of spirits, maybe spirits of the Old Testament, and preaching salvation to them so that they can be saved. The reason it cannot be there is that the word for preaching the gospel, evangelion, preaching the good news, is not used here. It is simply, the word that he uses is a mere proclamation. It could be a proclamation of good news. It could also be a proclamation of judgment. That word is important. And because nowhere else in Scripture can I think you do, uh, agree or, or um, defend an idea that after we die, we have another chance. The other thing is, if you're going to build a doctrine of purgatory, that you die and you go somewhere and then you hear about Jesus and you get to come back. If you're going to defend that based on this, you're kind of out of luck unless you died in the flood. Because that's what it's saying. That's the only people he went and preached to. In this passage, those during Noah's day. doesn't apply to anybody else. And here's where I think the mythology of the Nephilim and these spiritual forces is helpful. They struggled with what was going on in the world around the time of Noah. And how does God's justice apply to that? I believe what Peter is saying is that Christ's death and resurrection is a declaration of of justice over the mess that went on in Noah's day. That God has provided a way of salvation, just like he did with Noah in the ark. I don't believe, personally, this passage or any other passage in Scripture is referring that after Christ died, he descended into hell. I know we recite the Apostles' Creed. You might have grown up saying that. I personally never recite that line. I don't find it in Scripture. I think it's okay for Christians to debate over that. 
I simply do not find justification in Scripture for it. The point that Peter is making here is that Noah and the ark are a picture of God delivering people from and through suffering. Now, Peter uses the word saved. This is important for where we're going next. Peter doesn't tend to use the word saved the way we do. To be saved means you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your your sins are paid for and and you're alive in, in Christ and you have an eternity in heaven. And that's good. That's real. And Paul uses it that way over and over and over again. Peter likes to use other words. He likes to use new birth, a new inheritance. You are the new people of God. He talks that way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, over and over again. We have to ask ourselves what he means by saved. Was Moses eternally saved because of the ark? Did it make him a righteous person because God put him on the ark? No, what he's saying is, you didn't die in the water, you came out the other end. You were still alive. He was saved in that way. Now you might think, why does that matter? It matters because of this. The example of baptism. Verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward The great error that has come out of this verse is people that say you're not saved until you're baptized. The baptism saves you, and they point to this verse. However, I would suggest Peter's using the word the exact same way he used it with Noah. Yes, he saved him, but from what and to what? Peter would never say that anything other than Jesus Christ saves us. Never. It is completely contrary to everything he has ever said in his letters. So you can't take this to overrule everything else that is abundantly clear. In baptism, and the word means immersion. That's why as Baptists, we practice baptism by immersion. The person is lowered completely into the water. We have our baptismal back here. Lowered completely into the water. And we pronounce dead in sin. And then you're brought back up out of the water and alive in Jesus Christ. It is a picture of the truth that Christ accomplished for us. Now, in baptism, we go through water and yet we come back out again. There is a moment, and you guys don't normally see this or feel it, but I do, and and if you've ever performed a baptism, you might feel it too. It is the moment when you dip the person into the water and there is an instantaneous panic because everything inside of us says, get me out of here. And I've always told people as as I go through the instructions for baptism, don't worry, I've never left anybody in the water. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) Peter's actually saying the same thing. He's saying, remember your baptism? Did Jesus leave you in the water? No. The point of being dunked into the water was to be brought back out. You are saved. In the same way that Noah was saved, he wasn't stuck in that situation. He was brought out. 
Peter is not saying baptism cleanses us, purifies us from sin. In fact, he realizes that could be taken that way. And he says, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. The benefit of baptism has nothing to do with the practical effects of the water. It has everything to do with what was accomplished by Jesus Christ. So he's telling them, remember your own baptism. You went through the water, the suffering. You came back out. It wasn't the end of your story. Keep going. In many ways, we live in the moment of being dunked in the water. And in that moment of panic, God, what are you doing? How are you going to save me? How are you going to rescue me? And Peter says, look beyond that moment. You might not feel it right now. You might not be experiencing it. But Jesus rose from the dead. Noah went through the flood and you were brought back out of the water. Don't give up hope. God's not done. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, please remember that. The moment in your life of suffering or questioning or doubt or struggle is not the end of what God is doing in your life. It is just a step along the way. Hold on to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are giving us a perspective in this passage. A perspective of hope to hold on to in the midst of profound difficulty and suffering. And Father, there's so much that that we want to argue about or discuss and maybe even appropriately dig into, and that's good. And We don't really have time to dig into it all today. But Father, may we not miss the main point that you are making and the main point that Peter is making. Number one, we are saved through Jesus Christ. Number two, that no matter what suffering we are going through, we have the hope that that suffering is not the end of our story. We know the end. We see it because Jesus is already there. He has accomplished us and he is beckoning us homeward. Help us, Father, to continue trusting you and to keep our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.